you will notice a difference in sound quality of my introduction to this episode. The reason is the California wildfires. We had to evacuate our home in Sonoma County. You've all read a lot about Sonoma County this past weekend, and I am now recording this instead of on my fancy podcasting equipment on my iPad. We'll get back to the real sound quality when you hear the episode, but just wanted to let you know. Thanks. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation with David Schles, the president of ASHA, the American Seniors Housing Association, a conversation that we had on September 17th. I've wanted to have a conversation about seniors housing since the inception of Leading Voices, and then more urgently since COVID, which has had a huge effect on this sector, serving the most pandemic vulnerable part of our population. David leads the trade association for the sector, not one of the operating companies, so this conversation was high level rather than granular about best practices. And what we know has been 24-7 since the pandemic really broke out in a nursing home in Kirkland, Washington. More conversations I hope to come on leading voices on this corner of the real estate business. This is also a bookend conversation with my interview a few months back with Doug Bibby, who heads the National Multifamily Housing Council. Sometimes association heads have the best bird's eye view of a business. For me, this conversation was personal since my mom moved into the Quadrangle, a Sunrise Seniors community in the Philadelphia suburbs last June following the death of my stepfather. Anyone listening who has an aging parent or grandparent will understand the family dynamics of seniors housing. First, it was brutal getting my mom to make the move so quickly after my stepdad's passing into seniors housing. Most have been through it know the scoop. The kids so often have to force it to happen. Second, now my mom's favorite expression has been, I'm in the right place. She had no idea how isolated she actually was living on her own in her long-term home. And then with COVID, instead of feeling more isolated, cooped up her apartment, she actually felt more connected and cared for. Finally, I've been blown away by the communication and transparency that her community managers have had with the residents and families. Irrespective of the recent Bob Woodward conversations with our president, transparency and communication are synonymous with effective management and leadership, themes we've heard throughout the Leading Voices podcast, especially in the COVID-era conversations. Next episode will be a conversation with Cheryl Palmer, the CEO of Taylor Morrison, one of the nation's premier public home builders. It's been a while, certainly not since COVID, since Leading Voices has visited the home building business, so there'll be a lot to cover. Thanks again for being a listener to Leading Voices. I've not asked for a while, but if you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes. It helps spread the word and expand our audience. Also, if you have comments or thoughts on this episode of the show, please join the discussion on our LinkedIn show releases. Visit our site's website at leadingvoicespodcast.com or contact me at my day job at TerraSearch Partners via email to matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thank you, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation with David Schles. So, David, welcome to Leading Voices. I'm thrilled that you're joining us. I've long wanted someone on the show to talk about seniors housing, even before COVID. But now, post-COVID, this is a subject that's near and dear to everyone's heart and matters. 
But I want to say a couple things both to you, which you know, because we've spoken, but also for our listeners, because I have some relationship to this. One is I spent about three years of my career many years ago in the early days of what was then called the congregate care industry, maybe at the inception of some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. But I was uh, trying to create the program for congregate care housing for what was then the largest owner of apartments in the country, the National Housing Partnership, and got very deep into this business. But didn't stay that long because we didn't do a good job. This is a hard thing to figure out. So we'll, we'll talk about that, right? What works, what doesn't work. Second and more timely is my mother moved into a sunrise facility. I hate that word, but I'll use it. She moved into a sunrise about a year ago, obviously before the pandemic and the process of getting her in. And then the meaning of the pandemic and being there has been actually phenomenal, saved her life one of the most wonderful things. And we'll certainly talk about that. And last thing I was on the board of a nursing home until recently. So we think about that as well. So those are all perspectives in, that I bring to this conversation and things I'm so curious about what this has meant in COVID. David, you run the American Senior Housing Association. Then talk to us a little bit about what the association is, what your members are, what your members aren't. And I know one of the aren'ts is going to be nursing homes, but we're going to talk about it anyhow. Sure. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about all of this. So the American Seniors Housing Association was created in 1991 by the National Multifamily Housing Council. Yep. And I was uh, really in the right place at the right time in 1991, just pretty much right out of graduate school when the council started what was initially the Seniors Housing Committee. Uh-huh. And you know, the, the organization has grown really along with the industry over the course of the past almost 30 years. It'll be 30 years next spring. And we started with you know probably 10 companies and NHP was undoubtedly part of that when in the early days of ASHA, when we were part of NMHC and, and it's really grown. I think today I describe it as a boutique association. And I, and I say that in part because we really have focused in certain areas. The focus is, has expanded a bit from the early years, but you know, really it was created to provide a voice for senior living providers, particularly for for-profit senior living providers back in 1991 on federal issues. And that's still a real core focus for us. Definitely have focused a lot of our resources and energy on research, a lot, lot of which is really focused on trying to better understand who lives in our communities and who doesn't but looks just like our residents. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big area of focus. Much like NMHC, although again, on a much smaller scale. Hey, when did you split off from NMHC? That was just to put a date on that one. We split off in 2001. Okay, cool. So 2001 is when we split off. And really, they were a terrific group to incubate us. So we have meetings of the membership, and that's a third area of a focus. And really about four years ago, we started a consumer education initiative that we call Where You Live Matters. And there's a website, whereyoulivematters.org, and social media. And and that's really oriented at trying to help educate older adults and their families about the the various options that are out there. It can be very overwhelming trying to navigate 
all of the different options that are out there. So that's really the fourth thing that we do. So I describe ASHA as a boutique association. We have about 550 members, roughly 95% of the members are for-profit, about 5% are not-for-profit organizations. Most of our members develop, own, operate, or invest or finance senior living communities. So very you know high level membership and really most of the active participants in the US and we have a pretty healthy number of the Canadian senior living mm-hmm. profession involved in the group as well. And so let's talk about what senior living means both in your membership and in this podcast I I'm going to care less about your membership than the universe that you exist in. But what is the range or continuum of stuff? Is it all independent living, congregate care, assisted living, memory care, nursing? Where, where does it go in that? You know, so the spectrum really, it starts with what some would call active adult mm-hmm. or independent living with, you know, very limited services to assisted living, memory care, and continuing care retirement communities, which are now sometimes called life plan communities. And they usually have different segments on a campus. So usually a continuing care retirement community would have independent living, assisted living, memory care, and and frequently skilled nursing as well. Mm -hmm. And I I am drilling down on your membership because it's interesting for a couple of reasons that will be obvious. Um, You say about 5% are nonprofits, 95 for-profits. Is that the same percentage out in the industry? I'm guessing there's more nonprofits out there than are represented, a higher percentage of the business is done by nonprofits than you have in your membership? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, th- our membership is probably about 5% not-for-profit. The not-for-profits tend to be very active members of a group called Leading Age, which is a really terrific organization. We find that there are leaders of not-for-profit senior housing organizations that really enjoy, first of all, they enjoy the work that we do, our research and our advocacy, et cetera, but they like to have interaction with for-profit executives. And so that opportunity to intermingle with for-profits is something that they don't get from leading age. And so the ones that do join ASHA they tend to be leaders of not-for-profit organizations that want to really know what the for-profits are doing and and potentially learn from them and share what they're learning. So mm-hmm. it's a unique element of the ASHA membership. Yeah. And then the second question to that is what percentage is, I'll use two words, and I don't know if these are the right words for the extremes, but institutional versus moms and pops. I'm going to guess that you're 90% institutional and 5% non-pops, but I don't know that. You know, I, what I would say, obviously, that when I hear mom and pop and senior housing, it's, you know, to me, it's usually a one-off. Uh-huh. You know, it's a dentist that built a, an assisted living facility somewhere. We really don't have mom and pops in our membership. I mean, we have, we have some terrific companies that are smaller, more regional. They might have six buildings, eight buildings, 12 buildings. But, you know, I don't think we probably have many just one off what I would call mom and pop. They're out there though. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. you know, there are in certain States, there are a lot of these very small boarding care homes that have maybe five unrelated individuals living in someone's home. Sometimes it's a little bigger than that, 
And they're definitely out there. And I'll draw a parallel to the apartment business. So we don't have to talk about trade associations, but it's a parallel to NMHC, which is that when we read about the crisis around displacement, and I'm going to make this one up, but I think it's true. A lot of the negative headlines that you see are headlines by small owners, where if someone can't pay the rent in the three unit building, that's going to be really painful for that small owner. So therefore, they're going to have some displacement going on, where for the institutional owners, they're able to ride through this. And I'm going to guess that there might be the same parallel to the smaller owners of seniors housing who've had more trouble complying with the COVID, kind of getting up the curve on COVID. And maybe those are some of the ones we're reading about versus the more institutional players. But that one, I don't know. Any comments about that? I mean, here's what I would say. When I think about the mom and pops in the senior housing industry, where we have probably run across some issues with them is that, you know, some of the really small boarding care homes, they serve a very low income population, sometimes a very different population than ours, and they're Mm -hmm. in the same licensure category. So I think there have been, on occasion, there's been bad press that assisted living has received. And and if you actually look at what it is that's being written about, it's a very small board and care home serving a very different population than what the ASHA membership is serving. You know, I don't know specifically how the small board and care folks have, have fared in COVID. I just haven't, I haven't read that much about it. But, you know, in terms of resources, you know, there's no question. I mean, COVID has been a very expensive proposition for any of these companies that care for older adults, and they've had to reach into their own pocketbook and buy, and I'm not exaggerating, literally millions of dollars worth of PPE and sanitizer and testing kits and equipment to be able mm-hmm. to deliver meals to residents' apartments. And it's been a tremendous outlay of resources that I agree. I'm not sure everyone would be in a position to, you know, to do that. And and unfortunately, the government has not been particularly helpful to the, you know, senior living industry during the COVID period to date. Not helpful because they haven't suggested what best practices would be. Well, you know, that's a whole nother challenge. I mean, I think for the operators, the changing nature of the guidance has been the one constant throughout this whole process. And so, you're following the CDC and you're following state health departments and then, mm-hmm. of course, the local public health departments. But the guidance has changed. I mean, and this is really one of those circumstances where what we knew in March and April is very different than what we know today. And so even the you know, the whole question of the asymptomatic spread, I mean, the senior living industry's really been very adept at, at um at infection control. And certainly the flu is something that any senior living operator has focused on for years and they prepare for and flu shots and all of those protocols. Obviously the asymptomatic nature of COVID where it was, you know, spreading maybe 40%, maybe 50% of the spread was from someone who didn't even have, Mm -hmm. you know, a symptom and didn't know that they were a carrier. I mean, that, that was one of the things that really 
was not known early in this COVID period. And it, and, and unfortunately, it, there were real consequences to not knowing that. Also early, we were all thinking about surfaces more than we were thinking about the air. And now we think more about the air than we think about surfaces. And that's No, that's absolutely right. So David, talk us through when COVID hit, first of all, the first headline is a hit in Seattle. I think it was a nursing home, not seniors, but let's call it the same. And it put the spotlight on communities that had lots of old people in them, I guess is an easy way to put it. So talk us through your journey and the journey that your industries had over these past four, five, six months. Probably the first major outbreak in the country was in Kirkland, Washington, in a skilled nursing facility in March. And, you know, that was really the beginning, I think, of what has been just, a, you know, an incredibly challenging period of time for the senior living industry. And certainly, you know, from my perspective with the association, I think there was a, you know, an immediate scramble to try and understand what was the nature of the virus and, you know, how do we protect our staff? Mm -hmm. How do we protect our residents, which, you know, who obviously we know are incredibly vulnerable to the COVID virus? And on a lot of different fronts, I mean, I think for us organizationally, I mean, we immediately, the whole legislative focus of the organization began working 12, 14 hour days, seven days a week, trying to look for funding to help our members pay for the COVID-related expenses that they were incurring, as well as some of the other issues that we knew were going to immediately arise. And certainly the, the whole issue of liability was going to be very front and center for us. And, and that, was, that was certainly the case. The funding was an immediate issue, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Then there also was just you know, some of the issues that all businesses were working with, but we had some particular issues related to sick leave. And, and you know, we obviously need to keep these buildings staffed. So there were some of the employee issues that we mm -hmm. had, you know, particular issues with. And so it was on all different fronts that we were really fighting some very big issues. None of these are little, right. little issues. And then obviously just alluding to, you know, to what you mentioned earlier, then at the same time, you've got a lot of very negative press that's coming out. And some of it is you know, pretty darn inaccurate. And so, you know, responding to a lot of the negative media coverage also was an immediate and very pressing issue for us. And so on all of those fronts, we put everything else aside. And that was the sole focus of what we've spent really the past five or six months dealing with. Mm -hmm. And I want to think of you as your association, but I also want to think of you as your individual members. I think of you as the industry, not the association. And so talk about that kind of the, the curve that you followed to attack those different crises. And maybe first question is how prepared was your industry? In some ways, it feels like the bigger players must have been pretty well prepared because you guys, as you said, deal with the flu every year. My mother-in-law lives in a nursing home. They have quarantines every couple of weeks in the flu season. So they're used to quarantine where the rest of us don't know how to deal with that. I think on some levels, the senior living are accustomed to the, to the seasonal flu. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of this that they understand inherently. 
mm-hmm. and work on. And, you know, infection control is, is an important thing. Having said that, I think for almost all of the companies in the industry, there was this national shortage of PPE. So even the very biggest operators with, you know, really deep supply chain networks, I mean, you know, these companies were largely on their own, mm-hmm. you know, trying to procure gowns and face masks and gloves and, you know, all of these supplies globally. I mean, so, you know, we had we had members who were literally talking to people in Brazil and in India in China. And I can tell you on many occasions, you know, they had gone through incredible efforts at their own significant expense, because of course all this is, you know, being marked up dramatically. Right. Only to have the US government step in and, you know, and take their PPE. So then their whole shipment has been seized by the US government and redirected to, I don't know, hospitals or right. wherever it got redirected. So I mean, that was what was going on. And that was happening to very sophisticated operators with very sophisticated financial partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was chaotic and expensive and frustrating. And and I think that was happening to companies in the senior living industry, irrespective of how many communities they had or how sophisticated they were. I mean, that was the nature of, of you know, what was happening in March, mm-hmm. April, you know, I think by May and June, you know, some of that sorted itself out, but but that was, you know, one thing. And then the same thing with the testing. I mean, all of these companies realized at the outset how important testing was going to be for their for the safety of their staff, their right. residents, obviously. And, you know, and the same thing. I mean, so all of these same challenges that they faced with PPE, they also faced with testing. And I think, you know, the industry was incredibly entrepreneurial and, you know, went out, they found, you know, they found partners, they found, you know, private labs and became partners with some of these private labs. And Mm -hmm. there's probably hundreds of different ways in which the, you know, the companies have found access to, you know, to testing, but it's been very expensive. It's been very, you know, very challenging. And obviously in certain places, the results, you know, the lag from when somebody took a test to when you got the result back, you almost questioned why you took the test if it takes seven <laughs> days to get the results back. And so that's been a real challenge for, you know, for the industry, for sure. Yeah. And have you had, besides Kirkland, which was a nursing home, but we still care about that. Have you had, it gets to a place, it gets to a community, and then it's just like a super spreader. Have you had any super spreader communities within your members? And have they have like had hot spots? I don't know the right words to use about it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, look, I think the industry has done, I, I would say, incredibly well with COVID in terms of mitigating outbreaks and containing it. Unfortunately, yeah, there there have been some outbreaks in some senior living settings. Again, I think I think a lot of it, a lot of the worst of it was early on mm-hmm. in that phase where I'm not sure people didn't realize that it was being spread asymptomatically. And that was coming in from staff who didn't realize they were sick, they didn't have any symptoms. And and obviously, I mean, I think the protocols were in place. I mean, all these companies were, you know, doing everything they could. People were filling out questionnaires, health questionnaires, and they were taking temperature multiple times a day, and they were sanitized. They were doing everything they could possibly do, but without having access to a rapid testing kit, 
there's no zero risk with with COVID. And in particular, I think when it gets in to the memory care, the Alzheimer's residents, are, it's very challenging because they don't understand the social distancing. It's a lot tougher to contain that. Yeah, I, maybe impossible. It, it's interesting where my mother is in her sunrise again. I think there's I'm going to call it 30 units of nursing, and then I'm going to make this number up 500 units of, of independent living. When my mom first moved there, she was in nursing for a couple months. They've had a significant number of deaths in the nursing home wing, and maybe 20-something. That's a lot. feels like a lot. Plus staff, but no one in independent. So they were able to segment that out 100%. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is this, is the acuity level in a skilled nursing setting. I mean, it's, it, you know, usually if somebody's in a skilled nursing setting, they have significant care needs. I mean, they're usually very frail. And obviously this is a virus that is, you know, really vicious if you are compromised and very mm -hmm. old and fi very physically compromised. And so, you know, when it gets into a skilled nursing setting, it's very difficult to not have a you know bad outcome with that. Well, it's interesting when when I was the board of nursing home, it was the Jewish Home of San Francisco, and one thing that was obvious to me is that we actually well we had three constituencies: we had the children of the residents, we had the residents, and then we had the workers. And the workers were actually the longest lived members of the community. You know, they'd be there for 10, 15, 20 years. And it was also largely a black and brown community versus the residents that were more multiracial, I guess. But any comments on the workers as your constituency of this business? You know, at the core of any good senior housing company is the philosophy that first and foremost, we have to take care of our workforce. Mm -hmm. And if over all of the years that I've been involved in this, I don't think I've ever run across a really well-run senior housing company where the ownership and, and management didn't believe that first and foremost, we have to take care of our workforce and our caregivers. And if we do that, they'll take great care of our residents. And mm -hmm. and it's as true today as it was 30 years ago. I mean, that is the the essence of any great company are the people that work there. And, and, and certainly the caregivers are, they're on the front lines of this. And so in this pandemic, I think it was even more important to take great care of them and to help them. And I think, um, you know, the industry set up daycare, you know, obviously that was, we knew immediately right. that was going to be an, a big issue. So, you know, the kids are out of school, people rushed into the daycare business and tried to figure out how to help the employees with that. And I think a number of them, be, you know, began providing food for the residents to be able to take home because they were working extra hours and, and they, you know, were going to go home and they didn't want them to have to go to the grocery store. So I think the industry really rose as Difficult as this period has been, I think the industry, the best of the industry really shined through the COVID crisis. And I know we're not done with it yet, but mm -hmm. I think no more so than, than, you know, the way they, you know, really understood the importance of caring for the caregivers and the workforce and making sure that they provided the support. And, you know, many of these companies, probably the vast majority of them instituted additional hero pay. Mm -hmm. I mean, so this this was a crisis that required the industry to really be extraordinarily good with its workforce, and I think and I think that's happened. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. So I keep talking about my mom, but she we get I get an email every day. I've learned to like delete them now, but every day from the quadrangle, they send an email of where the cases are. So massive transparency, massive transparency and some level of cheerleading. And gosh, you know, they're there. And then even if you have that level of transparency, even if the transparency say, hey, we have two cases over here, you feel pretty good about it. With If you know there's transparency, you know they're dealing with it. Yeah, I, I, no, I think that's a great point. And I, and I think, again, that's one of those where for ASHA, we, we have outside crisis communications council that we work with. And so that was one of the first things we did in March was we, you know, we had them pulled together some talking points about how to communicate during a crisis. And I think the, you know, what you're describing has really been the way the industries reacted. We knew that we needed to be very transparent with families and and the caregivers. And I've heard people say, well, the industry doesn't report its data to the CDC and it's not federally regulated. But the reality is the industry has been completely transparent. Many of these companies actually have, you know, they put their COVID information on their websites Mm -hmm. and they're reporting all of this data and they have been reporting all of this data to the state and local health departments. And I think that's you know, that transparency has been really important. And I think there is no way you can over-communicate with the residents' families during a crisis like this. Mm-hmm. you probably awkward to call out one company, so maybe you have to tell two stories. But any stories of examples of either a company or a property or a something that represents the best of what people have had to deal with. And maybe it's a horror story, actually, how someone overcame a horror story. I haven't seen any horror stories. I mean, I've looked at some communications, you know, that I've seen. And, you know, so, for example, one of our members, it's not a a huge company. It's called Bloom Senior Living. Mm -hmm. I've looked at some of their communications and I've been really impressed. I think Atria, you know, just turning to a bigger company, I've looked at their website. You know, again, I think just really well done. It's it's been very open and honest and informative. You know, so I think there's a, a lot of that. I I also should point out, and it's it's taken me um, a few minutes, but I, I should have pointed this out before. You know, one of the other things that we did was we have this where you live matters website that we started a few years ago for consumers and. Really, by the end of March, we you know we realized we needed to put some very specific COVID-related content on that website, and so mm-hmm. we created what we called Senior Living Today and Every Day, mm-hmm. and uh, and we've really just tried to put very factual information about what is taking place in these buildings, and um, mm-hmm. and our members were very you know very helpful with providing video footage and photographs. And, you know, we put a a lot of uh, resources into public relations and the public relations really was trying to, you know, tell the story so that what people thought happened, what happened in Kirkland, Washington, that was being misconstrued as, you know, happening in other other senior living settings. I I think we, we really tried to set the record straight, not to say that, you know, there's no difference between senior living today and a year ago. I mean, I think we were very candid about Mm -hmm. the new normal, but the reality is, and I say this with two parents in their eighties living on their own in in South Florida, I worry about them every day, knowing that they're on their own and they're in the public supermarket and they're 
going up and no one is, you know, no one in their world is being tested and there is no sanitizer and, you know, PPE. And, you know, so I, th- I think the industry has really tried to tell the story of, yeah. of it, these communities. And let me ask a question about this. And you may or may not have statistics. I'm, again, I'm going to quote my mom. She's going to be so proud of herself on the podcast today. But her favorite words now, she opens and ends every conversation with Matt. I'm in the right place. I'm in the right place. And it is true because if she was in the single family home after her husband died right now, locked in, not able to go get food, having to bring caregivers in to help her when she needed it, falling down the steps, worst thing in the world, right? So what I'm wondering is at first you think no one wants their parents to go into senior living now because there's all these old people that are going to get sick. And then you pause and go, wait a minute. I want my mom to be there now because she could be taken care of. I don't have to worry. Has there Abs- been an influx absolutely. or an outflux? What's occupancy been that way? One of the challenges the industry has had is, you know, again, safely moving new residents in. Mm. Doing that safely has been a challenge. So, again, depending on the market and the COVID rates, there's been a loss of occupancy probably in, in most parts of the country. It, it, again, it varies. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's the challenges of moving new residents in that has been the impact on, on the occupancy. Before I forget, I just a little a little vignette for you. But one of our members' attorneys, you know, mm-hmm. corporate attorney, two parents, they're both in their late 80s. They were both in assisted living. Mm-hmm. And after Kirkland, Washington, they got very anxious and they and they moved both of the parents out of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, out of the assisted living facility. Unfortunately, and again, I know I don't say this with literally both of them passed away from COVID right. within a month of the family, you know, trying to care for them at home. In one instance, you know, I think it was an outside caregiver that, you know, again, had COVID and didn't know it. And But anyway, I would say for sure in a community where there's an outbreak of COVID, 100% your parents are much safer in a senior living community than they are when they're living Has by to themselves. Be. And, yeah. and last question on this, then we're going to change the subject. But how have your CEOs dealt with this? How have the corporate staff dealt with this because I'm betting certainly in the first three months, but probably even in the second three months of this, they haven't been sleeping very much. <laughs> Matt, I think you're right. I think this has been a crisis unlike probably anything that any of them have seen. And I think they're fatigued now. I think they've been working incredible hours. And I think that's the challenge now is just the fatigue of having these seven day a week Right. You know, 12, 14 hour, you know, work days and it's not over yet. And I think that's that's something that everybody's concerned about. So I want to come back at the end of the conversation to the thought of new muscles and what the new muscles are and what those new muscles mean for the industry going forward. But let's take a step back, talk through when you got started, what the industry looked like, quickly tell the story, maybe decade by decade, how the industry's evolved and then where it's going. So we have a whole five minutes to do the whole evolution, <laughs> but give it a shot. Uh, I'll give it a shot. So, uh, you know, my first thing I always remember when I joined NMHC in 1991 was there was virtually no data. And one of the first things we did, this was probably 92, maybe 1993, we started working with what was then Coopers and Librand. And 
of course, now PricewaterhouseCoopers. But, you know, we started working with Coopers and Librarians Hospitality Group. Mm-hmm. And we started, to, you know, there's no data. We did what became, you know, an annual publication called the State of Seniors Housing, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, operating metrics. But that first, the very first time we did the survey, and I don't exaggerate, I mean, there were a bunch of a bunch of the surveys that, you know, either people couldn't complete them because they didn't have good revenue or expense data. I mean, we had surveys that were completed in Crayola crayons. I mean, that's how unsophisticated the industry was at right. that period of time. And that's not an exaggeration. That's true. I think Crayola is an exaggeration, but we'll- No, we had people who filled the surveys out with green crayons. Okay. But anyway, you know, I, I think, you know, the decade of the 90s was the industry was starting to get some more sophistication and it was a period of a lot of growth, better understanding of who was likely to move into these buildings. I think that, you know, the, the two thousands, again, you know, more professionalism. I think you started to have some acceptance from more of the institutional real estate investors. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, we've watched that at ASHA over the years. I mean, initially for, for ASHA, I mean, you, you know, you had Prudential, Prudential was one of the early institutional investors, AEW. I mean, there were a few of them. Mm-hmm. And that has steadily grown as the industries become more sophisticated. Operators became much more sophisticated. Systems, much more sophisticated. And I think the product became a less risky investment as the industry got more sophisticated and is the industry really better understood who they were serving? You know, and I think that continues today. I think the industry still has a lot to learn from multifamily and hospitality. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I look at the industry today in 2020 and it's become far more sophisticated than it was even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So let me ask questions around that. How many are public companies? Or how many public companies are in this business in a big way? Now, you know, on the operating side, there are probably only a few publicly traded companies, Brookdale, Capital Senior Living, Five Star, probably just three of them at this point. Certainly in terms of the REITs, the, you know, the, the healthcare REITs are active participants in the space, and many of them participate in Redia structures. So they have involvement in the operations, and, and that would include certainly Well Tower. Ventas, Health Peak, National Health Investors, LTC Properties. So there's a number of you know mm-hmm. public vehicles through the REITs, and certainly there's a, you know a number of uh, private equity firms that are active participants in the space as well. Mm-hmm. And it's funny when when I was doing this for this brief time as a living, we people would come to us and they'd say, okay, we're going to go target that 77-year-old family, mostly women, maybe the husband died, they're 77, but they all turned out to be 86. What's the truth around the place where there is that turning point where someone does it? Any, where does that come to? Well, you know, I, I mean, what I would say is this. I, I think there are some really compelling active adult slash independent living developments that mm-hmm. are really appealing and that are that are doing very well. Mm-hmm. I think for many companies in the industry, they're, you know, they're serving, you know, folks that are in their 80s. They have some needs, they have functional impairments. And 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 more importantly, they are looking for engagement and camaraderie and they're looking to live their life and to 
not be alone. And I, and I think for, you know, for many folks, you know, you could receive services in your home and right. spend 12 hours a day watching TV. The real beauty of senior living is the engagement and the friendships and the camaraderie in that you can have that and you can have a really fulfilling lifestyle at 85 and at 87. And the companies that figure that out are successful. I mean, that's that's really the kernel secret recipe. Uh-huh. So talk about the muscle memory that we've now figured out, the new standards that may be there, some of which go away, but the muscle memory exists after COVID and ready for the next flu season or something. But what's going to happen to this business going forward? And we'll talk about kind of dream ideas for that too. You know, the industry is still, we, we still have to get through COVID and, and for the senior living business, I mean, that really means vaccination of our staff and vaccination of our residents. Mm-hmm. We do appear to be in a prioritized position for that. So I'm an optimist by nature. So I'm optimistic. I think that's going to happen early in 2021. Mm-hmm. And that obviously is, you know, going to be a you know wonderful thing when that does happen. The muscle memory, I mean, I, th- I think for sure the industry will be very much better prepared to deal with any type of seasonal flu, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. I think the industry comes out of this now probably with much better footing to play in the healthcare space and becomes seen by insurers, Medicare Advantage providers. There's a role because at the end of the day, this industry was on the front lines of this COVID pandemic, and right. we, we kept close to 2 million people out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. So I think that becomes, if I were going to pick an area where I think senior living will continue to evolve, I think it's going to be a, on the healthcare side. Mm-hmm. I also think, having just said that, there is still a real opportunity with the active adult and the more independent living product. And those are things I think we've learned how to communicate much better. I mean, there'll be a whole virtual tours and, you know, actually some things that probably the apartment industry was really much better at than senior living with really sophisticated virtual tours. Those things will become part of the toolkit for, Mm -hmm. you know, the senior living industry going forward as well. Mm -hmm. Now, until COVID, if I would go to a senior living conference or any conference and they talk about opportunities in the real estate world, they would talk about senior living because of demographics and the big wave coming. And that hasn't changed. So that's point number one. Point number two is with every generation, they have different desires of what these things will look like. And us baby boomers, we're going to want their living room in the senior living place to look like the Grateful Dead or something. And then the third thing is that one size doesn't fit all. So kind of mash through those comments and tell me what the future looks like for this industry. I think you're probably right on point with all of them. I mean, you know, I think, first of all, the industry at this point is serving about 10% of the older adult population. The hope is that we can grow that, that the bright future for the industry isn't just the inherent demographics, although I do think the inherent demographics should be very helpful to the industry, but there's opportunities to increase that penetration from 10%, hopefully to 15%, get people to be empowered and 
make the decision earlier and not wait until they're 87 years old to move. And I'm optimistic that that is going to happen. Mm -hmm. I do think the one size fits all. I mean, that's a great comment. And I do think that there are people that will move back into urban settings despite whatever may have happened temporarily from COVID. And I believe that urban senior living is here to stay. And, and there's a lot of appealing reasons to live in a, in a San Francisco or a New York or a Chicago. And I don't think COVID's going to change that. Okay. Well, wait, let me just go back to that one. It's been a theme on the last 10 episodes since COVID that we've been thinking about this. But so you think there's no pause or maybe there's a pause, but after COVID people want to live in cities as much as they did before or equal less, more, maybe they want to live in suburban communities. I think the point I was trying to make probably not eloquently, but uh-huh. I, you know, there's things that are very appealing about living in a city for some people. Yep. There's things that are really appealing about living out in suburbia. Mm-hmm. For some people, there's appeal to living near a college campus. And, I, you know, it's a very heterogeneous population. So mm-hmm. I think there's opportunities in all of those places. Mm-hmm. The boomers at the core of the next generation, it's all about experiences and connections and can't just be about bingo. I mean, it's got to be about- It won't work. It won't work with the boomers. And you know the companies that build senior living that really allow people to continue growing spiritually and, and emotionally and stay connected with other people of different generations, you know, that's what's going to drive this next generation of senior living. Totally agreed. David, the last question on leading voices is always, what advice would you give someone entering into this industry as a young person in their career? You know, my advice would be this. I think if you want to get into the senior living business, even if your background is business and, you know, and you want to start a company, I think you want to find an opportunity to work in the business, in a community, and actually feel it. And the hands-on operational piece of this, and that is the piece of this business that makes it very unique. But to get in there and spend time with the seniors and spend time with the staff and food service and all of the different pieces, I think you have to be in the building. So if I was going to give somebody who wanted to have a career in senior living, I think, yes, you want to have accounting and finance and marketing and all of those business skills, but you want to spend time on the operations side in these buildings. That's, to me, just the core of what I would advise a young person. I enjoyed chatting. This was, this was fun, and I appreciate you uh, asking me to do this. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast-wary... Take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.